Hey, everyone. I want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian in crypto and provider of prime services. They're also one of my favorite companies in the space. So thank you very much to Copper for making this episode possible. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my magnanimous co-host, Mr. Mark Yuskel. Mark, how are you? Magnanimous. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can come up with with why magnanimous today, but um, it's been kind of a crazy week. Maybe mag, mag, you know what magnanimous might be that you know, I did take full credit for the pump this week in in Bitcoin because you know I, I pulled out the green pants last week and we, we kind of predicted that it'd be a pretty good week, which it it has. So lots to talk about. Um, you know, I do have a little glint of green for the candle there, but you know, orange is Bitcoin Friday. Um, and you know, I know I, I still have not received from my friends at Mount Sox, which I guess they're not listening to me, my 2024 having socks, which, which I really need because it, it is all about the having, right? It's, you know, we had the demand shock, price went up. Now we got the supply shock coming. And the supply shock, it's actually big because I think, I don't know if you guys put out the data, somebody put out the data, um, 69%, maybe it was a lie, uh, 69% of a BTC hasn't uh, moved in the last 12 months. It's an, it's a, it's a huge percentage. I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head, but I'm actually just looking for the flows data that's been coming in this week because it's been a massive week for uh, inflows. And you and I have been talking about this on the roundup for the last couple of weeks, but the the GBTC outflows have basically been, they've started to peter off. Uh, they had a little bit of an upsurge this week, but they're down in the 50 to $100 million range. And it's really beginning to pick up with gusto from IBIT and FBTC, which are the iShares and uh, Fidelity, even uh, Bitwise, shout out Bitwise, they had an over $100 million inflow day yesterday. So here are the total numbers. Um, we've had about 4.5 billion in net inflows this year. That's against almost 7 billion, 6.8 billion in GBTC outflows. So yeah, you do. I mean, it's been over uh, you know 11 billion in total inflows, 4.5 net. And yeah, the price of Bitcoin is responding. It's just been kind of a one-way walk up. Um, so, and we've got our halving coming in in April. So how big of a how big of an impact do you see that the having having here, or is it basically just the ETF, the Bitcoin ETF flows in the driver's seat? Well, it's, it's the combination. I mean, the we had a we had an aggregate demand shift that's only going to accelerate, right? The the increasing demand for ETFs is is it's not going to be linear. It's it's going to be exponential. Now it'll take a while to get to the knee of the curve, but as you know, people like Vanguard and uh, uh, UBS and Merrill Lynch eventually drop their prohibitions against the ETFs, more capital will flow. But even even without, even with the largest firms still adamantly against, you've seen individuals and institutions, a big chunk of of the BlackRock capital is coming from big places, you know, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds. Um, so that that demand shock isn't going away. And there's 900 BTC a day produced today on April 8th. 
I think it's interesting that now the estimates are that the, the having is going to occur on the same day as the lunar or the solar eclipse, which is kind of wild. Um, you know, when it was going to be 420, everyone was all excited. And I think it's going to be 48. <laughs> now it looks like uh, the number, but you know, we don't know for, for certain, but uh, if it does coincide with the, the solar eclipse, I think that that's kind of wild. Um, but that demand is, is challenged because this, Huge amount of coins. You, know, you got you got a million from Satoshi, whoever, and then you got estimates somewhere between three and a half and five million coins that are lost or stolen. You know, multi sig that are stranded, whatever. Uh, so you're talking, and then you got what was the number? Like ten million held by individuals, most of them hodlers, who. I've said, you know, can pry it from my cold, dead fingers. Um, but ultimately, the way markets work, you know, I was busting a little bit on on Scott Melker the other day. You know, he's like, oh, there's, you know, more buyers than sellers. I'm like, no, no, no. There's, there's always exactly the same number of buyers and sellers. Right? And that's just the nature of markets. But the price changes. And, you know, someone says, I will never sell. There's a price at which you'll sell some. I mean, maybe not a lot, but but if price gets high enough, you'll you'll sell, and that's that's how markets move. So uh, the supply shock, though, we go from nine hundred to four fifty a day. That's a big deal if that hodler group or hodler group, however you want to pronounce it, um, won't give up their coins, and there's less coins for the miners to sell. The other problem is the miners haven't been selling all of their coins. Some of them have, but but some of them have been hoarding a little bit. So the supply problem is is real and it's only going to get more acute. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian and provider of prime services within digital assets. Today, what I want to talk to you specifically about is Clearloop. Clearloop is a solution from Copper, which to me solves one of the biggest problems for market makers, high-frequency traders, hedge funds within digital assets. You know the exquisite pain of what I call the pre-funding problem. So if you want to take advantage of arbitrages that pop up across different exchanges, or you just have a trading strategy which requires you to be active on multiple different centralized exchanges, you have to pre-fund your account at each one of those exchanges. Now, this is not ideal for a whole bunch of reasons. One, you have to take counterparty risk from those exchanges, which we saw this last year, can have major consequences. Two, it's capital inefficient. You have a whole bunch of assets spread out there. Most of them are not doing anything most of the time. And three, it's just not great from a workflow standpoint and it creates administrative overhead. So enter Clearloop. Clearloop is the secure MPC custody solution provided by Copper. The way that it works is you deposit your assets into this MPC solution, which is owned and operated by you. Clearloop syncs up with a whole bunch of your favorite exchanges, and then you can trade securely from Clearloop itself while not taking any counterparty exchange risk with any of these exchanges. And it's a super easy and nice UX. Now, Clearloop is trusted by the likes of Flow Traders, Brevin Howard, Nickel, some of the best in the business. But the coup de gras is in the extreme edge case that one of these exchanges were to go bankrupt. They have a very clever trust structure, which segregates your assets and keeps you completely protected. So 
Click the link at the bottom of this episode, especially if you're a hedge fund and market maker and you want to learn more. Or better yet, Dimitri, the CEO, is actually going to be in person on a panel hosted by yours truly at Digital Asset Summit. So DAS London, that's March 18th to the 20th in London. So you should definitely click the link at the bottom of this episode, give your boy some credit, but also even better, come to DAS London and hear from Dimitri himself. All right. Cheers, everyone. Question. What do you think about the the Ethereum ETF? So that is sort of the next thing on the horizon here. And yeah. I know the Bitcoin ETF just happened. It was a mini buy the rumor, sell the news. I think um, Dan Moorhead is going to be proven right that it was a buy the rumor, buy the news event as we're well above the highs, even on the, the run up on the, the day of the ETF going live or the ETF complex going live. And now people are starting to wonder what's going to happen with Ethereum. So there's an, a date upcoming in May which I think is the last date for the Vanek ETH spot ETH ETF approval. There is a question about whether or not they can uh, include yields, like some form of staking in the ETF, which feels unrealistic for the time being, but maybe in the future. What do you think about this idea of the ETH ETF in general? I mean, well, there's the logic and then there's the emotion. So the logic would say, hey, SEC, you ruled multiple times that Bitcoin and ETH were not securities. Therefore, if you approve the Bitcoin ETF, ipso facto or, you know, ceteris paribus, you should, you know, approve the ETH ETF. That said, I watched, you know, GG on the, the, the tube the other day. And I would say logic has nothing to do with this. He was all emotion and mm. ain't no way that guy and 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 he basically kind of snapped at the uh interviewer and uh it was pretty ugly and he basically said that's a decision for a five member committee and i think if you think back to the bitcoin etf it was only a 3-2 vote and he was the deciding vote, but he was forced, like literally forced by the courts um, in his mind and an action, probably an actuality. Actually, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think actuality. But but I so I I I think highly unlikely it gets approved would be my guess that emotion trumps logic. Yeah. I, do you think I mean, even this. I mean, one thing that we've seen from crypto over and over is that this kind of this dangling of the meat right in front of the market is uh, that actually ends up being a massive driver of price action because the idea is, well, you know, the market saw what happened when we got a Bitcoin spot ETF. Eventually, we're going to get an ETH spot ETF and maybe there could be some attempt to front run that. And probably we saw that with the Bitcoin ETF right in from yeah. the period of June or July of this year up till it was finally approved in or June, or July of last year up till it was approved in January. So do you think there could be a similar effect for you? You know, it's, 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 it's tougher to tell because all things are not equal. You know, so one of the things that, that always happens in this part of the cycle. So we're, you know, we're in the, the late stages of, you know, crypto summer. So, you know, June, we, we swap over into crypto fall and get the parabolic part in that, that late stages you, you see this kind of price action where Bitcoin becomes the lead because people are anticipating the halving. And then the others, particularly ETH, they tend to move in lockstep, like at a ratio. 
you know, at one point it was like 10 to one or eight to one. And, and, and they just, they literally just move in lockstep. And then it, it filters down into the other coins too. And some of them actually then get on people's radar and then they actually have their little, little spiky moves. Um, and you saw that with, with Doge and Shiba in, in the last cycle, not so much this cycle, but at least people aren't talking about them as much. I don't see that, that silly little dog all the time. Um, but I think this time it's, it's frogs and, uh, and, and other things, but, um, I do, I think in Bitcoin's case, and I, I haven't proven this in the sense of going to the, to the wallets, but I, uh, I, I shouldn't say I've seen the wallets that were accumulating Bitcoin in advance of the Bitcoin ETF approval. Mm. I will argue those were related to BlackRock at all, that they were basically accumulating some that they could then go buy from um, and make a little profit too. Um, and maybe it was friends of the firm. Maybe it was hedge funds that they work with. Maybe it was, you know, I, again, I, I haven't done the forensics to find out who, but my guess is that was pretty, I mean, you saw it every day and that was front running of a different kind. Like normally front running is, Hey, I just want to get in because I know something's going to happen like an earnings announcement, like like Coinbase, which we'll talk about. So there was a lot of front running going on because there were people who were pretty sure this was going to be blow up number. And you saw it was going up every day into the earnings and then ended up even more after the earnings. But that's a different kind of front running than this. This, I believe, was getting supply because when the demand for the ETFs came in, I think people knew it was going to be hard to go find enough Bitcoin to buy. And so that's the, and that could be what's happening with ETH. So if people were doing the same kind of thing, then you'd have upward pressure and you've seen ETH actually outperforming modestly. I mean, it's been pretty neck and neck, but outperforming modestly in the last few weeks. Um, I probably lean that unlike the Bitcoin ETF where you had pretty clear signaling by the the sponsors that yeah we're we're good and you know the relentless meetings back and forth I don't hear about lots of meetings and lawyers you know billing doing lots of billable hours on on ETH so yeah I agree with that. One interesting tidbit, we had uh, David Troy on the interview portion of this week, and he was describing, he was really deep in the GBTC trade, uh, or basically the grayscale trade, which was the arbitrage where you could buy in at net asset value. GBTC was trading at a premium, so after a year, you could uh, exit at the at the market rate and collect, you know, at one point, which is, you know, 60% premium or something like that. ETH-E, so that was the Ethereum trust from grayscale. So he he actually mentioned that at one point they shortened that window from 12 months to six months. And that was a huge part of that, you know, after you lower the length of the lockup, it becomes much more attractive from a risk reward standpoint to run that same arbitrage. And so that ended up driving a lot of the ETH price action that we saw in later 2021 into 22. And it's just, it's just funny. It's just 
a reminder that oftentimes what's driving price is invisible to people at the time. People ascribe narrative to it when really there's something kind of mechanical going on behind yeah. the scenes a lot of the time. Yeah. Ex post, it's easy to to make up a story, but you don't know in real time. Sometimes you do, but not not necessarily. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we switch to talking about Coinbase earnings? This was a this was a fun one because uh, everyone's favorite crypto company had a huge beat this last quarter. I do think it's funny. I actually went back and looked. The uh, Bank of America, you know, even two months ago, they they got turned more bullish on Coinbase and they upped their their price target for the coin coin shares from sixty dollars to sixty six dollars. You know, now uh, coin, coin is trading. You know, I I don't even know what it is pre market, but. Anyway, they had a massive earnings. It's like one sixty, but it might even be higher. I don't know. I think it's higher. I think it's closer to one eighty now. Um, here, let's see where it is pre market. Yeah, one ninety. One ninety. Yeah, one ninety. So, yeah, yeah, jumped fifteen percent after these earnings, and yeah, you know, the reason why. So, um, we're for those of you who are following along via via video here, here we can zoom in a little bit. Um, you can see that Coinbase had a. They ended the year. Uh, very strong, actually. The in terms of net revenue for the entire year, they did just under three billion, two point nine billion, which was just a little bit shy of the three point one that they did in twenty two. Which, if you know how bear markets were, I mean, that's that's pretty incredible that they managed to do yep. that. the The big difference was the net income. Uh, so they lost two point six billion in twenty twenty two, and they turned a profit of ninety five million in twenty twenty three. So just a massive reduction across the board on opex. And again, for twenty two, they lost. 371 million in EBITDA and or they had negative 371 million in EBITDA and for 2023 they did 964 million in EBITDA. So uh, Q4 was great as well. They grew net revenue from six a quarter over quarter from 623 to 905. Um yeah, they generated a massive gain in their net income as opposed to a loss and yeah, I mean that's I I feel like that's the major story across the board. I guess the only the only other thing that I would point out is people are very excited that Transaction revenue has rebounded really strongly. It's rebounded more on the consumer side of things than the institutional side of things. People are very uh, paying a lot of attention to when retail is going to come back to this market. So that's worth calling out. And this subscription and services bucket of revenue, uh, which is really critical for their for how Wall Street views them, because they, they think that fee compression is going to happen over time, continues to just chug along. They grew, um, you know, something like twenty percent quarter over quarter from three hundred thirty four million to three seventy five, but. Mark, what did you what did you think about these these uh, this earnings release? I, I mean, like I said, it was, it was a blowout, and I I think it was you know, the most expected unexpected, uh, or maybe the most unexpected expected outcome in the sense that I think a lot of people thought, uh, okay, they survived, and it's no longer just a shitcoin casino. And hey, wait a second, you know, seven, or maybe it was, I think it was seven of the newborn nine were going to custody with them. And hey, wait a minute, they're making a lot of fee revenue. You know, it's kind of like when Wells Fargo many, many years ago separated from the other banks. And, you know, all the, you know, banking is a, is a net interest margin business, right? You, you, Pay your depositors X, you lend it Y, and you or you earn a spread. And Wells Fargo kind of changed it up and said, "Well, but we're gonna we're gonna tack on some fees and we're gonna charge some." And that's when Buffett 
bought in and that was his whole thing is he wanted them to pay him, you know, nice dividends so that, that he could lever up that that's, that's his plan. He takes low volatility assets and levers them up and never pays taxes. It's, it's genius. And so I think that's kind of what's happening here in that when they started, it was all about activity and volume and, and getting as many things listed and getting a lot of trading and, and making your commissions. Well, now they, they have things like, you know, massive custody books and huge institutional business of, you know, uh, cold storage. You know, I thought about wearing the, uh, the cold storage socks today because, you know, that's one of the challenges for the ETFs is so much of Bitcoin is sitting in cold storage, not actively available on exchange. There's going to be tough for, for them to, to, to find enough to buy. And, you know, we own a lot of Bitcoin across our funds, but we don't keep it on a ledger, even though we love Ledger and that's a portfolio company. It's in, you know, Coinbase Institutionals, kind of what was um, their uh, Zappo business that they bought. Yeah. the How much of a revenue driver do you see? This was a, a topic of interest in the analyst questions, but how much of a revenue driver do you see the custodial business for ETFs being moving forward. And there are other there are other ways that you can like there's a way that Prime monetizes the ETFs. And yeah, uh, yeah. What, what do you think? How much of a driver uh, a revenue driver of the ETFs? I, I think it's going to be a very meaningful driver. You know, it, it was just getting started now. Um, but but over time, I look investment banking I always thought was an interesting term because really it was the trading components of people like Goldman Sachs and and others and and their prime brokerage units that that made incredible amounts of money doing things like stock loan and and uh, extending margin. Um, so there's there's lots of related businesses that if if you are essentially the financial institution for the digital age, which is kind of what Coinbase has established themselves as, there are many ways they can augment just the, the commissions and, and fees uh, from, from trading and, and activity. And I think custody will continue to be an increase. Now, custody itself is not a, a high, um, it's not really a high margin business and they do compete on price, but you make it up on volume, right? And it's scale. There, there are benefits to scale in these businesses and scale comes from trust and from reputation. Um, and I think they, they, they are the dominant brand in the business. So that's, that bodes well for the future. I agree. What do you think about this bucket of, uh, subscription outside of their transaction revenue, which I, I do, uh, I do think that Wall Street is going to continue to underestimate the the transaction revenue. Um, just a just a prediction, and just take a minor. Well, you've broken that down every every quarter. You know, for the last year or so, you've you've talked about that and and been dead right on it. And and I think the average person, I mean, look, part of the challenge of of the investment industry, you know, analysts, they're only right about 40% of the time, which is a crazy stat, right? Wall Street analysts yeah. are right about 40% of the time. And yet they still, you know, seven-figure gig if you can get a job. Um, and so 
and and the game of of catch up is extraordinary. I mean, you know, you always see the the bank after the stock price goes up adjusting their you know earning or their their price forecast or you know but but to have a like you said here a price target of sixty six dollars for a stock that's trading at one ninety I mean that's a total head scratcher and I think it's because they don't understand the business maybe they don't want to understand that's part of it that there's pressure um yeah I'm sure some people remember the story of of the kid that wrote the negative article on Trump's casinos and he got him fired and he got reinstated and paid. And, you know, because it turns out, you know, truth is supposed to be an absolute defense. And, um, you know, they eventually went bankrupt, but it's, it's a hard world. You know, wall street is a, a tough world in the sense of it's not always just, Hey, let's put the truth out there and let, let the people decide it's who pays what fees and and you know what which which deals are hot and which people know kind of the the path to navigate to to get you know kind of the front row or the the first um you know the best people on their uh, tombstone so it's it's complicated yeah but i would say that this company has been unfairly punished by lack of coverage and lack of qualified people. And that doesn't mean everybody who's following it isn't, isn't good, but I've, I have yet to see anybody do as good a work as you've done on this, just in the, you know. I, I appreciate it. I, it's, it's just uh, accounting correctly for the reflexivity of the business model, which is extreme. And I think it, it probably there were some crypto natives that missed it on the way down, but I think people aren't going to be totally prepared for what these volumes and the fees that they generate are ultimately going to end up doing on the way back up. And the nice thing about Coinbase's business model is that they've built this nice other part of their business, which now makes up a, a very solid chunk of their revenue, which is subscription and services. So it's this combination of stablecoin revenue, blockchain rewards, interest income, custodial fee revenue, and this sort of other subscription and services revenue. I'm actually a subscriber. They've got Coinbase One in there. Um, I'm a subscriber to that. And which which I said I wouldn't be, but I but I am. I actually find it pretty useful. Uh, and yeah, they have they have like a a great staking business, which is their blockchain rewards business. It's going to be really difficult for uh, people to value or totally grok because there aren't there are no public company public staking companies, so people don't even have a framework for how to value that. Um, interest income and custodial fee revenue people get, but the stablecoin revenue is interesting because you now it's doing 170 you know, and change per quarter of revenue. But it's also pretty counter cyclical. Like this is the thing that sort of expanded during the bear market. So not only do they have this great reflexive transactions business, but they've built something that feels much more like a steady, almost in some senses, counter cyclical portion yeah. of their revenue. Yep. Which is really nice. So yeah. and uh, the, the last thing that I'll uh, mention on this, which I found pretty interesting was, you know, I was listening to these uh, analyst questions and they were saying some things. It was just like, hey, we're assuming that we're going into a bull cycle. So how do you think about this? Or actually, there was one there was one question from an analyst, which they were looking at their sales and marketing expense. And he started to question it. And my assumption is, oh, you know, this guy's going to ask, why is Coinbase spending so much? And what he actually asked was, hey, we're going into a expansion cycle. Why aren't you spending more? You know? <laughs> I was like, wow, that was... 
that's pretty interesting to hear from uh from these analysts uh so i thought that was an interesting tidbit from the from the q a absolutely absolutely yeah um maybe uh one more story here before we start to wind down but there was a there was an interesting headline from i think coindesk wrote this this week that one of the uh, federal reserve governors was open to questioning the idea that stable coins are actually beneficial for the u.s dollar so i don't know if you've seen this this is a long i'm like nick carter has probably done the best job of advocating for this view this would be my view, but the idea is, you know, to set, maybe set a little bit of historical context, stable coins are one of the areas that regulators are watching most closely and perhaps most uncomfortable with it. You could look at a stable coin as something similar to the construction of a money market fund where you have depositors and then some sort of asset that's supposed to track the value of a dollar. The other way that you could look at it is, hey, there's this alternative financial system and they have, with without any prompting from from the United States, actually a lot of <laughs> the opposite of prompting, they're disincentivizing, um, but they're adopting US currency within this ecosystem. Um, and actually, this is a this is a driver for this is people that will buy up US debt. Um, this is a way to expand dollar hedge money. And it seems like the Federal Reserve, or at least some of the governors are open to that point of view. What do you think about that? I think it's uh, making lemonade out of lemons, kind of, in the sense that the the initial, you know, stiffening and, and negative reaction, totally logical. If you think about, you know, if you're draining dollars, fiat, out of the the traditional banking system and and putting them into this, you know, alternative financial system, uh that that gets ugly really fast because of the leverage in the traditional banking system. You know, that's why I say in in the first they ignore you, right? Oh, you know, playing with your magic internet money, whatever, go away. Then they kind of <laughs> laugh at you. Oh, look how cute. Ten ten billion dollars. Wow. Hundred billion dollars. Now we got a freaking problem. And that's where kind of we are is is the problem phase, which was the then they fight you from from two years ago. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. People are taking their money out of JP Morgan or Bank of America and they're sending it to BlockFi or Voyager or Celsius or whatever, converting to stable coins and they're getting paid interest in a zero interest world. That's a problem for, so the banks were like, hey, hey, you fixed that. And Ms. Yellen was like, hey, you know, we need to regulate stable coins and we need, we need to ban them and and you know, tethers a fraud and all, all the, all that stuff. Well, now you got at least a few people saying, well, whoa, 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 hold on. Yes. It's a problem that there's leakage from the banking system, but, but ultimately the potential that all of those assets are ending up in dollars or treasuries, like that, that's actually potentially a really good thing. Now, I, I do think the bigger question for me is is how long do stable coins um, utilize that collateral uh, as opposed to some other collateral as as the quote unquote you know risk free or stable stable asset um, but it's hard to you, know, you have the algorithmic stable coins, which were 
you know, never stable and, 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 you know, blew up the, the industry. Um, so you can't, you can't use like an 80 vol asset like Bitcoin as, as the base layer. Um, but I do think there are some, there are some other things that people could, could think about utilizing, um, hard assets or, or, you know, um, uh, well, other currencies for that, for that matter. But, uh, I, I think it's the right approach is to the, the short, I should have said just giving the short answer. I think it's the right approach to say, Hey, this is a benefit to us because we do have the risk free asset, um, which is the, you know, the treasury rate. And if they're going to accumulate lots of treasuries that, that works for us. Um, but I get why the banks still don't like it. Hey, everyone. We'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about Das London. Das London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto hosted by Blockworks. But I wanted to give you an update because we are now 10 times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower, as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of the Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital. And actually on day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House Rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60, but we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So if you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark, uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London. Cheers. This is Jim Bianco's point as well, where regulators are concerned about fiat-backed stablecoins, which is, again, if you were to, if your mental framework for looking at stablecoins is that this looks like a money market fund, sometimes there are runs on money market funds. Famously, this happened in 2008. And I think what, they might be concerned about is that, hey, if there's, you know, okay, there's 100 billion, 150 billion today sitting in the, you know, across Tether and USDC. What if in the future, there's a trillion dollars sitting in USDC, and this is magic internet money and not real. So what if all these people decide to run, and then they just, there's a, you know, fire sale of treasuries on the other side of that? I think that is a concern of theirs. And I think another thing that they'd be worried about is, I mean, the dollar is, an export of the US. We, you know, we have a lot of control over dollars that are based in the US, but you know, there are actually other dollar systems as well, like the Euro dollar market, uh, which is actually much larger. And we actually do feel the need to come in and bail out the Euro dollar market when shit goes sideways. And I think maybe their concern is that, hey, maybe this is another large, large, less regulated kind of offshore dollar market that we might have to come in and bail out if stuff goes sideways. So I, maybe that's another concern on the longer, longer term time horizon. Yeah. Um, and, and then finally, one, one more story before you for, before we wind down, but CPI came in a little bit hot this week. Um, and people were concerned about it. You know, it was like 0.1% month over month more than everyone thought it was going to be. And market kind of sold off and then aggressively rebounded. So non issue from your standpoint, Yellen came out and said, we should not 
zone into, you know, we shouldn't overcount single data points. So it doesn't seem like she's concerned. But what do you think? The narrative shifts to whatever's convenient, right? When the when the number was was uh, in their favor, right? It was always about single data points. Oh, look how great the number is! And now that the number was a little different, you know, when it was going down, they're like, oh, every data point is important. It's it's like the most important data point. Like, Stop. <laughs> the trend is maybe important, but the data point's not important. So you know, the narrative will be what the narrative is. Like I said, the narrative is always created after the fact. And and that's stale data anyway. And it's not very accurate. Um, you know, you got the, 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 I don't know what they call it, uh, Trueflation and a bunch of others that actually, or the MIT inflation project, that are actually calculating probably better in, indicators of inflation. Um, and those all have, have different, different values. At the end of the day, <laughs> 3.1 or 3.2, that just doesn't matter. It, there's not that level of of accuracy, and there's lags, and there's so I I but I do expect uh, the government to to say whatever is useful to keep things afloat. Like I mean, we are in a <clears throat> speculative bubble in in the stock market like we've only seen one or two times in history. No, 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 we're not. And, you know, uh, NVIDIA is not Cisco. I'm like, well, it, it kind of is. I mean, and you can set, you can make, you can find differences, but, but to look at the paths, they're very similar. And, and I showed the chart of this yesterday in, in, in my around the world thing, um, that if, you know, we've seen this movie before. In 2000, we had this company called MicroStrategy, and it went from a dollar, literally parabolic, to $300. Everybody was short. The shorts got carried out. And then eventually, it completed the parabola and went down 99%, and Michael got in trouble and, and all kinds of stuff. Now we have this super microcomputer ink, and it's, you know, it's like tripled in four days, and it's it's gone totally parabolic. And I mean, that's, that's a bubble where we're in a bubble, but that's what the government wants. The government wants a bubble because the boomers own a lot of stocks in their 401ks and they don't have enough to retire. So we need to inflate those assets. So it, it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that we're going to keep saying all is well and just, you know, keep buying your houses and keep buying your stocks and keep the uh, uh, the economy, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, high because I, you know, I, I yeah, there, um, yeah, you can say all you want, but but there are no examples, by the way, none, zero. You know, Jeremy Grantham's got great work on this. There are no examples of these types of parabolic moves up that then go flat and stay flat at the top. They just don't exist. Now, they, they can go longer and higher than you think, but they don't make flat tops. They make, you know, Eiffel Tower patterns like this one. Mm. Yeah. So for folks who are following along via video, we're showing a chart of Cisco from 1996 to 2000, looks like 2003, overlaid with 
NVIDIA from the 2020 to the present day. And, you know, these are all, all of these charts, I'll just say as a disclaimer, almost more, they're never very scientific and you shouldn't look at that as being, you know, you shouldn't look at these charts and say, this is exactly what's going to happen. But no, to no, your no, point, nothing no. is parabolic forever. Yeah. No. I mean, so, there, there, there are zero examples of parabolic and flat. And, and it doesn't mean, it. it can go much further than you think. And I learned the hard way, you know, by losing money, which is the way you always learn in this business. You can't short them. And that's why they do this, right? Is people are trying to short Supermicro and, and NVIDIA and, and you get cooked. Now, when they finally roll over, then there's very little that stops them on the way down. And, and then you get back to a, a fair value. And, and look, I just keep coming back to Scott McNelly. Right in in 2000, when Sun Microsystems did one of these, and he was selling at 10 times revenues, right? Not not Nvidia's 40 times revenues, four zero times revenues, you know. Or um, what's the next? There's there's another one's at 13 times revenues, and then Amazon's at like you know 10 and nine, or Microsoft's at 13. Um, he said at 10 times revenues to make a decent return over the next decade, I basically have to give you all of my revenues as a dividend, which is illegal and I'll go to jail. So that's not going to happen. His stock went down 98% over the next decade. So people didn't make a good return. Uh, and I'm not saying that will necessarily happen, but but it will. And I, I can't tell you when, but uh, trees don't grow to the sky. And and competition is real. You know, people forget, you know, NVIDIA didn't exist as a business for a long time. And we made lots of chips and, you know, Intel did that. I mean, Intel had a 20X move in, in 2000, 2001. No, 99, 2000, sorry. And, you know, it was going to be the future of AI and all this stuff, you know, just but then it went down and it's now lower today, 24 years later than it was back then. Same thing with Cisco because other companies get created and this GPU craze is real. I mean, it's real, um, but it's going to get replaced at some point by something else. You know, will we have ASICs or will we have three PUs or will we have, I mean, I'm literally going to go, you know, have lunch with one of our uh, portfolio company CEOs that, uh, runs a business that they have a chip design that they think could replace many of these, these super chips that, that NVIDIA and others are producing. Well, we'll see. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's the way it works. So um, that's actually a pretty good segue for my kind of uh, reveal. So I, you know, I said I run venture fund and um a year ago, you came to me and said, hey, think about doing this thing, uh, a roundup of our, my weekly show uh, on the margin. You know, we do it once, once a week. I don't know if I can, com- I don't know if I can uh, commit to once a week, um, but we'll try it. And, and we did, and we tried it, and we did it for a year, and it's been great, and it's been the, the best hour of my week. But... Um, I think it's probably time I <laughs> not do it. And uh, that's sad for me to say and not where I really want to want to go. But, you know, I, I 
I have my own around the world with USCO that I've been doing. And that used to be a monthly cadence and it's turned into a weekly cadence. And we have our digital currents, which again, used to be a monthly cadence and has now gone to more frequent. So, uh, and deal flow, best I've ever seen in my career. Just, it's an amazing, amazing time to be an investor in uh, the digital asset ecosystem. And as, as much as I love doing this, um, I'm probably not being paid by my LPs to, to be a podcaster. So. Yeah, Mark, it's like the most bittersweet news ever because uh, obviously I'm very sad, but I'm, I'm happy because these last year and a half have been, you know, just a ton of fun doing this with you. And I know the market is picking back up and your duties at Morgan Creek are, are pulling you back. And I'm happy for Morgan Creek, the fund, and I'm, you know, bittersweet, sad for on the margin in our show. But I'm so proud of the work that we did together these last, um, you know, year and a half. And this has always been the best hour of my week. And obviously, um, you know, I'm still going to be nagging at you all the time to come to our events and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, this is not not goodbye. But unfortunately, it is the end of our our segment on, on the margin. And yeah, it has been um, one of the great experiences uh, for me. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously not goodbye. But uh, yeah, I, um, I'll be tuning in, I guess. Now I got to get my Mark Yusko from uh, your own show. Um, so I'll be tuning into that. And then um, yeah, we'll look forward to all the great things that happen at Morgan Creek for this year. All right. Well, again, have enjoyed it and uh, you know, wish you guys all the best uh, at, at Blockworks. And, um, you know, we will, uh, you know, we will certainly, our paths will cross many times, but, uh, you know, I guess I'll have to do my, my sock reveal in uh, some other virtual medium, but uh, uh, people probably I'll be tuning in to see anyway. where the market is going from, from what socks you choose for the week. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, solid yeah. sock of the week post, but yeah. All right. Well, again, best hour of my week. Best hour of my and, week. Uh, talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.